Beautiful. Let's turn to that Psalm, Psalm 79, and we'll read it there. It's, uh, we're going to go through this this evening for a short while. Uh, can I say that it's good to see some of the students who are away at your weekend away, and I understand that you're very tired. You're still going to stay awake, okay? Because otherwise I will name you and shame you, and that should motivate you. But no, good to see you. Thanks for being here this evening. Now, let's read verses 1 to 5 to start with. Psalm 79, a psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They've defiled your holy temple. They've reduced Jerusalem to rubble. They have left the dead bodies of your servants as food for the birds of the sky, the flesh of your own people for the animals of the wild. They've poured out blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there is no one to bury the dead. We are objects of contempt to our neighbors, of scorn and derision to those around us. How long, Lord? Will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Now, when I knew that this weekend was coming up, we were going to be celebrating being here for 25 years. I've been working through the Psalms. I think my intention now is to resign from St. Peter's once we finish Psalm 150. Um, that's when we get to the bit about dancing and so on. Uh, and that will finally be fulfilled um, by, uh, we do one psalm a month, so you can work out how long this is going to take, what kind of commitment it is. But when I looked at this, I thought, it's not good for, it's a bit downbeat for a, a celebration. But for me, it's not, because um, I'm a Leonard Cohen type person, and I'm Scottish. Um, and it's, I don't think it's miserable at all. I think it's realistic. And I think it's really helpful. And I think what's interesting here is this psalmist has seen many things. Now, to help you understand the Bible, it's really important to realize how the Bible goes chronologically. It just doesn't work the way that we normally do. So Psalm 78, which is a, a marvelous song about God sending up the shepherd king and the kingdom being established forever and uh, the temple is, is going to be built and everything's going to be great. That's 78. 79 is 400 years later. So, you know, we're celebrating the Reformation 500 years ago. We'll just knock off 100 years and you're about there. And 400 years later, what has happened is the monarchy that was going to last forever has ended. The Davidic monarchy has ended. The holy temple has been defiled and it's in ruins. It's 587 BC and Jerusalem has been destroyed. What in Psalm 78 seems to have been forever, in Psalm 79 seems to have gone. And it's, the Psalms are brutally honest, and the psalmist is asking, how long, Lord? What, what's happening? What's going on? I know that my oldest daughter, Becky, does not like this phrase, snowflake. Um, not because she is one, she's the very opposite of snowflake, but she doesn't like me putting a whole group of young people together and saying they're snowflakes. Well, I apologize to younger people here. You are not snowflakes, we all are. Um, We're growing up in a culture where resilience and spiritual um, character amongst Christians, we just, every time the devil looks at us, we fall over. And I think that one of the issues that is going on here is having to face up to the fact that the world is not pretty, 
And within the world, the church finds herself often in a very ugly situation. In the past 25 years, we have seen many changes in this church, in the wider church, and in the wider culture. Um, In Dundee, for example, we've seen many changes. Those of you who are Dundonians or have been around even longer than we have in Dundee uh, will recognize so many of the changes, many of them positive and good, and some of them not so positive and not so good. But we pray. I I was in a uh, waiting for a train in Edinburgh, and I picked up the Edinburgh Evening News, and I couldn't believe it. It said, Dundee is known as the city for jute, for jam, for journalism, and then it said, for Jesus. It was in the Edinburgh Evening News. I think they were trying to be sarcastic, but it really was quite extraordinary. Well, may that be the case, and if you don't know the jute, jam, and journalism, forget that, but we want it to be the city for Jesus. I mean, huge societal changes. Now, this first part of this psalm tells us that the glory of God is being defiled. He laments the destruction of Jerusalem, and he expresses his feelings. And by the way, that's hugely important. Why does he express his feelings if God already knows? Lord, I'm really sad, but you know that already. Lord, I'm really happy, but you know that already. You know everything. So why should I even pray? Because that's what prayer is, the pouring out of our heart to God. And God wants that. Um... We have different ways of expressing ourselves. Our brother Chris, when he first came, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, uh, but when he first came, I remember Murdo, uh, who was here, a retired minister, and praying, and he prayed a beautiful prayer, a lovely, eloquent prayer. Murdo was very, his prayers were lovely, and he, but, you know, it was, oh Lord, um, come over the mountain of our provocation, and so on. It was, it was, but it was a beautiful prayer. It was lovely. And then I remember Chris standing up, or hearing Chris, I don't know what he was doing, standing up, dancing, or whatever it was, going, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> and, then he, and, and then he started crying. And it's funny, both those prayers were both very emotional. And I thought, that's right. We have different ways of expressing ourselves. You know. But like some of you, you get very excited and you want to praise God and you raise your heart, arms and hands. And because you're Presbyterians, you do that. And some of you have still not got over your charismatic days and your your full light bulb, the whole lot. Um, And it's great. It's great that God does that. But here, the psalmist is lamenting and he's saying, and it's not wrong. It's not wrong to lament and it's not wrong to be upset and it's not wrong to question. In our society, there's a lot to lament. We have this incredible information technology, which if you want to, I hope you don't do it in church, but you can go home, go on your smartphone, go on the internet, and you will find 101 things to weep over in this world. We're just overloaded with the stuff. And I think maybe one of the commentators suggests the lament here is primarily for the church, and we should do that. Now, I'm going to mention particularly the church in Scotland, but uh, I also think, you know, Caroline being here and others as well, we've prayed for throughout the world. We do need to pray and remember the church throughout the world. The Spectator this week had an article, an incredible article, which I think is true, arguing that the Christian church has never been so persecuted as it is today. Now, I think you could argue one or two periods in history. But actually, when you look at what's going on, you see, we hear in our media about the Rohingya, who, who it's, it's terrible what's happening to the Muslims, it's happening by the Buddhists in, uh, in uh, Myanmar, where Hugh is going. 
and our government will give money for that. But how many of you know that the Karen people have for decades been persecuted? And many of them have been destroyed. And what's happening right now, which is not being reported, is that ISIS fighters, having been destroyed, are going to help the Rohingya. They're not going to attack the Burmese government. Who are they going to attack? They're going to attack the Karen people. And there are more than 120,000 of them who've been forced to move and being attacked. How many of you remember the Egyptians who were beheaded on the beach as they knelt? Now, what is going on in Nigeria now with Boko Haram? And 1.2 million people, mostly Christians, being forced to flee their homes, many of them being killed. So there's a lot we can look for in, in the church overall and, and see different things. And you can see lots of things in terms of not just persecution, but heresy from within. And that's true, I think, particularly in our own country. Um, the change in Scottish society in the past 25 years has been phenomenal, and the change in the church has been phenomenal. And sadly, one of the reasons for that is the church is following the culture, not the other way around. And so we've seen a situation where in the past 12 years, the national church, the Church of Scotland, has lost a third of its members and is losing 20,000 plus per year. I've watched what's happened in this city. I've watched, if it wasn't, the Catholic church would have been relatively similar if it wasn't for the number of uh, particularly Polish people who've come in and, and helped the Catholic church. We look and we say, well, there are flourishing evangelical churches. Well, not so many. The largely remaining static, the decline in the brethren, for example, the Baptists have remained static. Now, there have been situations of growth or in the free church. Um, I've uh, been a free church minister for a long time now, for 31 years, and I love the free church. But I have to tell you that in the 1990s when we came here, the free church was a disaster and almost imploded. Uh, you have no idea how close. I, ca I think we came within two to three years of completely collapsing. And then God in His mercy heard and answered prayer, and in the year 2000, things got really shaken up. And even then, it was like we'd gone to the edge of the cliff, and instead of falling over, we were just leaning. And then what God did over the next 10 years is really, for me, quite extraordinary. I'll tell you this now. I didn't tell anybody at the time because it wasn't intended as a threat or anything. But if the church hadn't changed by 2011, that would have been 25 years in the ministry for me. It, I, I was done. We, we knew that. Myself and Abel knew that. And God did change the church, and it really was quite extraordinary. But there are still many difficulties and problems and in, in the evangelical church throughout the United Kingdom and throughout the Western world, there are enormous problems. We have evangelicals now like Steve Chalk and Brian McLaren and others who, who deny the very core of the gospel. They deny the atonement. I heard a good Christian program with somebody on it recently where the guy said, well, I just don't believe in substitutionary atonement and it's not that important. And I, I, I just wanted to weep because I just thought, this is crazy that Christians are hearing this. People are really confused. And I, I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this to the very young people, to the teenagers, that, and just in secondary school. You live in very exciting times, but very dangerous times. And right from your very earliest years, you have got to determine, I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm not going to turn back, no matter what the society says. And I'll say that to our students as well, that 
you have enormous dangers facing you from the backsliding that's occurring in the evangelical world at this moment in time. And I say this as well. I love charismatics. Those of you who are from a charismatic background, you have no idea how much of a blessing you have been to this congregation. And uh, we've never argued about tongues and everything else like that. We'll do that another time, one day eventually, maybe in heaven. I, I just don't care. But you know more than anybody the chaos that's been, the church has been thrown into by charismatic confusion. Because what's happened is this. There are many fine charismatics who love the Lord Jesus. Myself and Annabelle, we met a Roman Catholic charismatic on uh, the island of Lopad. It was just, he was a wonderful, wonderful guy who loved Jesus. And, and, you know, I think loved his word, but didn't really know it very well. And here's the problem that's happened in charismatic churches. People are so desperate for an immediate experience of God and, and an immediate knowledge that when a leader stands up and says, well, here's the Bible, and that's good. The Bible's good for illustration, but I've got a word from the Lord for you. Suddenly, the leader becomes all-powerful and gets all the authority. And that's one of the things I want you to recognize here. You never believe anything I say if it's not from the Word of God. And sometimes you'll say, David really annoys me. Well, so what? Get over it. Sorry, snowflake Christian. That's just the way it is. You have to understand and grasp that we go by the Word of God. And when you have a church where the prophet is the Word of God, then you get spiritual abuse. And many of you, I know people have come to this church who've suffered from that because it really hurts because you trusted the leaders. And then what did they do? They let you down. And yet they claim to be speaking the authority of God. Now, I want to say that to you. I I will apologize right now for any time that I've let any of you down because it's going to happen. But Jesus gave a rule. Not once, not twice, not three times and you're out, but 70 times seven. Work it out. Do the maths. That's how much you've got to forgive. And some people think it's even in one day. But there's mass confusion in St. Peter's. We have many, many wonderful things to thank God for. But you know, if the Lord peeled back, what would he see? He would see backsliding. He would see people turning away. He would see many, many struggles. He would see, and some of us have known, desperate situations, personality clashes, difficulties, real, real difficulties, people feeling suicidal, people committing suicide, the devil coming in and working in so many ways. There are so many struggles. Sinclair, and I thank the Lord for Sinclair, is very fond of saying this and Because he knows it. You die a thousand deaths to proclaim the Lord's word. Some of you are thinking, I know some of you young men here are thinking, I'm going to go in for the ministry. Well, you need to talk to those who are in the ministry first because it's not as glamorous as it sounds. And in our culture, it's not as easy as it sounds. There's much to weep over. The glory of God is defiled. You know, I sometimes smile, um, not smile, but you get used to it with experience, and Annabelle is much, much wiser than me. Sometimes I'd go home to Annabelle, and this is what I would say. I met so-and-so, this new person down at the church. They are absolutely brilliant. They're the most wonderful person I've met. They're going to be great. And Annabelle would say, wait and see. You know, no, that was wisdom. Because what would happen, and I, well, I've seen this so many times, people would come in and they would go, oh, this is the best church ever. It's the best church since sliced bread, if it was ever a church. And you're the best preacher since the Apostle Paul. 
And within six months, you know that you're going to end up being the devil. And it's not that you've changed. It's not even that they've become more realistic. They've just swung from one to the other. And that's what happens in churches. That's the way that it is. But what the psalmist notes here is that the harm that is done is not even the harm that's done to the people. It's the temple that's been defiled. There's no one left in this to perform the service of the temple or even to bury the dead. God's people are kept in contempt. They are mocked. And that's what should break our hearts about the church of Jesus Christ, where today comedians feel perfectly free to mock our gods and to mock Jesus Christ and to use his name as a swear word. They wouldn't do that with any other religion, but they do it. Why? Because we've been easy meat in that way. We've provided so many opportunities for people. The name of God is blasphemed amongst the Scots because of you. And he, he's, God is jealous. Now, that, by the way, that's not a bad thing. A bad thing for us many times. Exodus 34 says this, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. And what that means is God is jealous for his own glory and his own honor. And that is really important. That's part of God's nature. And we will, I hope, see and understand that it's really important. So when you and I look, and if we even begin to get a little bit of understanding of what's going on, um, then I think it would overwhelm us. But once we realize that God's glory and God's honor is at stake here, then that would encourage us. Somebody said to me recently, and forgive me if you're here for repeating this, I won't say who you were, but I just, it, was, it was very helpful to me actually, and thank you for it that sometimes you didn't read, like reading some of the stuff that I write because it's not because you thought it wasn't true, it's because you thought it was true and it so depressed you that this is the way the world is, can't cope with it. Well, that's true. But here's the incredible thing, not just for the world, not just for the church, but also for you. I think possibly the most dangerous prayer you can ever pray is, Lord, show me my sin, because I don't think you can handle it. I think that we look at the world and say this is horrible and sometimes we get an insight and we're utterly shocked. You need to understand that God sees it all and knows it in far greater depth than we can. It grieved God that he had made the world when he saw all the sin in the days of Noah. It grieved God. And when we see stuff that grieves us, just imagine how our father feels at that. So the psalmist is just appalled that the glory of God is being attacked. And we should be appalled that the glory of God uh, is being attacked and mocked. And sometimes what goes on in churches and what you hear in church services, you think this is a mockery. This is a blasphemy. Far worse than any comedians can do. Christians or people who profess to be Christians standing up in churches and not glorifying Christ, but degrading him. Let's read verse six. Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob and devastated his homeland. Do not hold against us the sins of past generations. May your mercy come quickly to meet us, for we are in desperate need. Help us, O God, our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. What had the Israelites done 
to deserve such judgment. What dreadful thing. I could tell you about ministers who've committed adultery. I could tell you about a minister who was so angry with me one time, he wanted me thrown out of the church and at the general assembly. And I thought, what did I do to upset him? And later on, we discovered that he was a man who spent a lot of his time drinking whiskey in his shed and was into pornography and lots of different things like that and ended up leaving and is now one of the leading activists, I think, against the church in this country, a free church minister. You experience these things as you go on in life. That's a dreadful sin, what he did. But that's not what's being talked about here. You know what it is here? It's just the non-acknowledgement of God. It's not just their sins, but it's our sins. And here what's happening is the psalmist is moving not so much to lamenting even the sins of the past or the sins of other people. He's moving to lament their own sins. We are objects of reproach. It's our fathers. It's our sins. A number of years ago here, we introduced a confession in the morning. Why did we do it? Because we need to confess our sins. And because it's far too easy for us just to say, oh yeah, we do that all the time. No, we don't. And to do it collectively was a good th- is a good thing for us to do. And I'm glad that we did that. We lament the wrong and the sins. But we also call for the overthrow of those who would oppress and do evil. We leave vengeance to the Lord but we seek the overthrow of every power that mistreats the Lord's people. We don't do it ourselves. The most powerful weapon we ever have is to use prayer. It's said that Mary, Queen of Scots, said of John Knox that she feared his prayers more than 10,000 troops. We don't use the weapons of this world. We pray. Do not hold against us the sins of past generations. Jeremiah says, 31, I will forgive their wickedness, declares the Lord, and will remember their sins no more. It is one of the most wonderful things to know that God has forgiven our sins. In my view, 90% of the pastoral problems that exist within this congregation exist amongst people who do not know and do not experience the forgiveness of sins and therefore cannot Share that with other people. Forgive us our sins as we have also forgiven others. Jesus said a really interesting thing about this. I think, I think he was using this aspect of our forefathers have sinned. He said, um, this generation, Luke eleven fifty, will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who, has killed between the, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. It's interesting. We would like to claim the merits of the past. We're not so quick to claim the demerits. Here's this idea of a generation inheriting guilt We're not less guilty, but we're more guilty. And that's why, again, we come to God for mercy, because we're part of a community, we're part of a context that goes back into the generations. And there have been many sins in our nation and in our culture. So we lament the glory of God. We call upon the glory of God, but we lament our sins. We lament what's going on. And, you know, in St. Peter's, What do I do? Do Do you want me to list a list of sins? 
things that really hurt, things that I see and I only see a little bit and God sees a whole lot more. Sins in my own life, I'm not going to list them for you because it's none of your business. And I'm not going to identify particular sins in particular people because usually I don't know. But I'll tell you this, I think overall we have an enormous danger just now of complacency and of triviality and of opportunities not being taken. It's good, isn't it, being in a church that's pretty well full on a Sunday morning and so many good things and so many wonderful things. And indeed it is. But it's incredible how quickly we become Laodiceans, how quickly we become, we say we, have re, we are rich and we have need of nothing. When you're in a building here that's falling down and there's a handful of people, we're going to close. We're dead. We're finished. You've got nothing to do except pray and ask the Lord to have mercy. When you're in a church of 300 people and it's bursting at the seams, you pray and ask the Lord to have mercy. Because I'll tell you this, it can go down very, very, very quickly. Very quickly. Because we're a mess. Um, Owen Daly, I remember when Owen came to the church, Owen and Natalie, uh, they weren't married at the time. And they were looking for a church. And I hope Owen won't mind me saying this. But he said, can you describe your church? There were, you know, people, many of us have been hurt by the church. Can you describe your church? And I said, yes. I think I will if you want a soundbite. We're a messed up people in a messed up world with a great Savior. And Owen just looked at me and smiled and said, I'm in. Because that's what we are. But we still are. Do you understand that? When you hear and see a Christian who's really messed up, it's like looking in a mirror. We still are. That's why we need to keep reminded. That's why when Sinclair's been going through the Gospel of John, I keep thinking, that's impossible. I've known the Gospel of John for decades, and it's like I've never known it. Because all he's doing is he's just bringing to us Jesus again and again and again. And it's not, I don't think that's Jesus for that person and Jesus for that person. I'm just thinking that's Jesus for me. And that's what we all need. Help us, he says, for the glory of your name. There's an appeal here to the compassion of God, the passionate, emotional love of God. Help us, God, our Savior. Come to meet us, is what he says. And you know what that cry is? That is the cry of the prodigal asking the Father to come and meet. And we know what happened. The Father ran. Come to meet us. And you'll note here as well that this this prayer... It's not the kind of prayer where we pray, Lord, I'm so desperate. I need this. I, I, I need money. I need a partner. I need health. I need this. I need that. It's saying, Lord, for the glory of your name, not primarily our needs. Forgiveness can only be sought on the grounds of who God is. And once we see who God is, then they, yes, we go for it. Forgive our sins, he says. The Hebrew word used is kefir. It just means atonement. That's why when Chalk and others say, oh no, we don't believe in that. They're taking away the very hope that we are. If if there is no atonement, I, I would say this right now. If I did not believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that's where the atonement was, I would close the Bible. I'd probably never read it again. I would walk out this building. I would resign my job immediately. I don't understand how a Christian cannot accept the atonement. I've got nothing else, and you have nothing else. Forgive our sins is the cry. 
Then just let's finish by looking at verse 10. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Before our eyes, make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. May the groans of the prisoners come before you. With your strong arm, preserve those condemned to die. Pay back into the laps of our neighbors seven times the contempt they've hurled at you, Lord. Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever. From generation to generation, we will proclaim your praise. If the glory of God is his concern, the glory of God is our hope. See, some of you will identify with this and some of you won't, and it might scare you a wee bit, but I'm, I'm going to have to do it, say it anyway because you will identify with it. There are those who in your lives, sometimes you read something in the Bible or something happens in your life, and what it does is it's like a hammer blow into your very heart because you begin to doubt the goodness and beauty of God. Because how is it possible that God can allow something so dark so dirty, so evil, how can he allow that? How can, you, how, how can we even comprehend or even cope with it? God is a God of faithfulness and justice, but there are so many things that are faithless and unjust. And as I was reading this, the, just thinking about it and all the different things, this, this really helped me. I hope this helps you. Do you know what the question is? The question here is one of timing. The question here is, in the context in which you ask that question at that time and in that context, your question makes absolute perfect sense and your feeling makes absolute perfect sense and is not wrong. But somehow you have to be taken out of that immediate time and that immediate sense and see something far greater. So 400 years after the temple was supposed to last forever, it's gone. The, king, the Davidic monarchy is gone. And how do you think these people felt? Now, they didn't know about Jesus. Not really. And they, they must have just been utterly overwhelmed. And all that they could have surely would be the words of Job. I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end he will stand on the earth. Somehow, God is going to work this one through. And I think there's a danger with people like me who like to give reasons and think things through and apologetics, they call it. We try to find an answer for everything and sometimes there isn't an answer because we don't know and because we don't see the bigger picture. And that's really important to grasp. So here, if they could have, they would have looked forward to Christ. We we need to look to Christ all the time because we are those who are imprisoned. We are those who are condemned to die. We are those who are mocked. And so verse 13, the hope there rests on two foundations. Number one, the Lord always stands by his own reputation, verses 10 and 12. That's why every promise in the Bible to me is like gold dust because God cannot lie. The God who cannot lie. He cannot lie. You need to remember that God cannot lie. And when the devil comes and says, well, God lied. Or it says this in the Bible, but that can't be true. Because look what's happened. You say, no, no, God cannot lie. Even when laboring under the affliction of his wrath, we are still his people. We are still the sheep of his pasture. So the first foundation is God stands by his own reputation. And the second is he always stands by his threatened people. The prisoners who are condemned to die. 
God loves his people and God protects his people and God keeps his people. I have a genuine and real love for the people of this church. Um, It's a family love, I know that, because a family love means you get really annoyed by people and really mad at them. So I'll confess that. That's we're a Christian family, okay? This isn't a plastic church. We aren't all super saints on a Sunday and then we disappear. We are human beings and in a human family, human families, you know, things rub up the wrong way. But the love that I would have for the people here is nothing compared with the love that God has for us. And he will always, always stand by his people. Now, what I love about all of this, just two things to finish, is that we can plead our miseries before God. And we can do that, not least because Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and was moved to pity and action by our groaning. There is nothing that has happened to you, nothing that you feel, nothing that can happen to you that as David was saying this morning, the God of all comfort cannot bring comfort to you. I think of my friend Myrtle Murchison just now, and to be honest, I think more of Margaret, his wife, and the torture and the hardship she's going through. And please don't say, well, she should be okay because, you know, murder's with Jesus and everything's fine. Don't think that Christians don't suffer. And the agony that she goes through at the moment. And yet in the midst of that, there is also this, yes, but God is good. I feel this pain, but God is good. And that's where we're at. That's the world that we live in. And there's just a tremendous promise of, um, we will praise. We'll praise you forever from generation to generation. We will proclaim your praise. I know some of you have spoken to me about bringing up children in a world like this and so on. Well, from generation to generation, they will praise your name. For me, how thrilling it was to baptize my atheist sister, who by then wasn't an atheist, by the way, um, who had been converted through my son and my dad. Just, how do you think he felt? Seeing that generational thing. You never give up on your children. They wander far from the Lord, and they may even wander far from you, but you never, ever give up on them. We will praise you from generation to generation. I love the idea that once God is saved, we've had we've people who've come and said, I come from a non-Christian background and I've become a believer, which is wonderful. We've seen a lot of that here. But what I, what I love about that is not so much even just the individual, it's the fact that God has come into that whole family. Whether they like it or not, that's what has happened. So, he says, God says, I will be glorified despite us. Forgive me, uh, and I hope you've forgiven me in this sermon for allowing a little bit of personal reflection. I was going to do a just kind of wee thing at the beginning, and then I thought, no, no, it fits through the whole psalm. And I, uh, I, before we take communion, I'll just say this. Sometimes I realized this morning that you look at people, well, they're your children, and they've all grown up. So John Cooper will please forgive me for saying this because he's not here. But John Cooper told me this morning he'd been here 20 years. Well, I remember when John came to the church here. And he was, well, he was John Cooper Jr. And uh, it was just fascinating to watch how God worked in his life and what he did through John and what 
uh, just, it was just quite remarkable. Now, I mentioned John, but there are many others. And let me again say this to the children here. Who knows what you're going to become? Uh, there's an elder sitting here, Stephen Allen, and he is here, and he won't mind this at all, I'm sure. I, I babysat Stephen Allen before I came here, that is. How did I know when I babysat him in Livingston? And Stephen remembers those days very well. He remembers what he was like. Uh, could I ever have foreseen him as my elder to whom I answer? No. But that's, that's I'm going to say to the boys and girls here, you have no idea what God is going to do in your life. And that's exciting. And it's wonderful. But I say also to the students here, we've never ever encouraged and expected students to come along and we want you to come, we want you to fill a pew, and we want you to go away. No, no, we don't. We want you to be part of the family. And I'm sorry, that's why I keep asking you your name because eventually before you leave, I will remember it. And then we can pray for you when you leave. But it, it's not that. We want you to be part of the family. And when I think about how many students have come through here and gone to different parts of the world and how many have stayed, and I know I tease you Northern Irish folks, but we love you. But um, I'm afraid the um, Malaysians and the Asians, they're, they're pretty well up the top as well, probably ahead of you, to be honest. Uh, they have much better food. Uh, that gives them the edge on that one. But we love the students, and we love what's, what's happened with that and what God will do through the students. And then the children, what God has done through the children, and so many young children coming, and what an absolute blessing it is to have those children. And rather than bring them up in the fear of, oh, what will happen, we should bring them up in the joy that they belong to the covenant community, and God will not let his children go. That's why I believe in infant baptism, by the way, because it's God's seal on them. It's not us saying we're not going to let them go. It's God saying, I'm not going to let them go. They're not going. And they're not kept by law. They're kept by love. And they're kept by His Holy Spirit. And then older people. There was a time in this church when if you were aged 40, you were considered old. Um, and now we've got older people. I remember a couple coming once and they said, we can't stay here because there's nobody our age. And usually that's younger people. And these were a couple of people in their 50s. Um, but God has changed that. And you know what I love? As much as the children, I love the fact, and I won't name anybody, <laughs> it's not fair, I love the fact that there are older people here who are coming to the end of their days, and God has brought them here to spend their last days in this fellowship, and they are a joy and a privilege to know. They are people who are finishing life better than they began it. And that is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. And again, I'm going to say to the young people, never, ever disrespect the older people. The ones who are here and have been Christians for so many years, you will never learn more than you will learn from these people. So that, those are things I see God glorifying and many, many others as well. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sorry if I've named people or I haven't named people. That's not what I really intended. I just wanted to say this, that I'm so thankful to God, and we sang at the beginning, to God be the glory. And Yes, it's a dangerous prayer to say, Lord, open my eyes to see my need, to see the needs of other people, to see the needs of the community. I prayed a long time ago, God, I, I pray that you would show me some things in our culture and society that I can understand so I can proclaim your word better. To be honest, I'm not sure if I'd pray that prayer again because sometimes it's really horrible to see it. And the only thing that sustains and keeps going is Christ and his word and his people and his spirit. And that is fantastic. The communion is a strengthening ordinance, and that's what we're going to do just now. We're going to sing before uh, we take communion. 
we're going to sing the song, Jesus, I Come. And whenever we take communion, we're coming to Jesus. I would argue whenever we're coming in worship, we're coming to Jesus. And let's just sing these words before we sit at the Lord's table. Out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. I I think the psalmist almost looking ahead to Jesus and seeing this dreadful situation and yet being able to come to Christ. Let's sing these words prayerfully. Let's stand to sing.